I do think that this cycle and this drawdown will be sort of the last time that we have a large camp of doubters for crypto and Bitcoin. Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect within Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hey, y'all. How are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's good to see you. I see you guys in person, but uh, like I said before, this is the last day we're going to say Happy New Year because yeah. it's officially the fifth business day yeah, of we're the test- year. I think so. we're testing the limit on the Happy New Year thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. Everyone's happy to see each other, though, which is good. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we, we have quite a bit to cover today. Um, you know, I think kind of at the highest level, it's really just going to be a recap of, of last year and some of the biggest themes we saw over the course of the year. And we're going to spend um, a little bit talking about kind of how what happened last year may influence what we see in the coming year. So uh, we're going to start out um, with Jack providing, an, you know, kind of a macro overview, a recap of, you know, traditional financial markets and, you know, how, how that impacted digital assets this year. Um, then we're going to, you know, Transition over to Jason to talk about a little bit, what, a little bit about what we saw on the regulatory front this year. Um, obviously, it's been been pretty active there. Um, and then I'll provide an overview of of Bitcoin mining. You know, maybe less positive, not a great year for miners, um, but you know, nonetheless worth talking about. Um, and then Parth will close us out with um, kind of. Uh, a recap of the utility of digital assets, whether it's in DeFi or more, more broadly, and kind of what we've seen on that front. Um, so that's a lot to cover, but uh, I think without further ado, Jack, you want to provide a macro recap? Yeah, I'll, I'll kick us off with uh, one of the topics that I think was most important uh, of the 2022 year. And I think it's important in 2023 for a number of reasons as well is What's the impact of traditional finance uh, and, and really macro as a whole, you know, the global macro economy uh, on, on crypto as an asset class, right? If we remember back to the end of 2021, we're sort of coming out of a lot of, of COVID-related um, things, and obviously it's still ongoing. Um, but at the end of 2021, we saw you know, the, the rates of inflation uh beginning to to start to show signs that you know, this was a problem that wasn't going away and that the Federal Reserve stopped using the, the phrase transitory. It felt like it almost like left the halls of the Federal Reserve, so to speak. Um, and, and instead, this was sort of a, a pivot and a focus on tamping down inflation. And that was really all of, it felt like a, a lot of 2022 was characterized that way. And so we saw you know, rate increases in, in Fed funds rate, uh, as well as a, a shift from quantitative easing to quantitative tightening. And so instead of a, a growing Fed balance sheet in near zero rate, the sort of the wind at your back from the macro perspective for traditional assets and for crypto. Uh, now we're in this environment of Fed balance sheet shrinking, uh, as well as um, 
you know, interest rates or, or positive forward real rates, um, uh, particularly on a, on a forward basis. Uh, and so if we looked at the start of 2022, we had you know, Fed funds range of, of zero to 25 basis points, effectively zero. Uh, and we ended the year with uh, a range of you know, 425 to 450 basis points uh, being the range. And, and this was one of the fastest increases in all recorded history. Uh, I think it would be one thing if crypto, you know, look at Bitcoin's year-to-date returns last year. Uh, for 2022, I think it was down 65 70%, right? It would be one thing if that was happening and equities rose 10 or 20%. You would start to say, like, something is wrong here. Uh, but this was one of the worst years for, for just traditional portfolios in all recorded history for 60-40s. If we looked at real returns for equities, you were down 25% if you baked inflation in. Uh, that's one of the worst decile performances on a real basis. For bonds, uh, it was one of the, if not the worst performance in the last 100 years for bonds, down 20% in real terms. Um, and again, that sort of depends on what index you look at. Um, but, but for a 60-40 for a traditional portfolio, it was not a good year. Uh, and so if you, if you had all of that context and you didn't know what crypto did in 2022, like I think all of us sitting here would say, crypto probably didn't perform well in 2022 if a 60-40, if traditional assets had huge headwinds. And of course, you would be right. If we look at total market cap of, of crypto, it was near $3 trillion in November of 2021 at the top, $2.8 trillion, uh, down to today as we're speaking, $856 billion. That's a 70% drawdown. Uh, it's you know, 20 to 30 basis points of global assets. And, you know, if we look at last year, it was a bad year for crypto, but I think it's really important to preface that with all of this, you know, all of this macro environment calamity that was going on in the background. And that had a direct influence on the price of, of crypto assets. And, you know, you look at the, the Bitcoin chart and you zoom out over 10 years and you say, wow, this, this has incredible returns. But you have to remember that like the first thing you learn in finance 101 is if there is return and there's no risk, then it's too good to be true. And of course, that's not the case in crypto. There is real risk. And we saw that show up in, in 2022, of course. So one of the major themes was inflation and inflation and interest rates, uh, you know, sort of go hand in hand. There's a relationship there. Um, inflation at the beginning of 2022, we had trailing year over year inflation of 7.48%. We saw peak in June of over 9%. And then we finished the year at just over 7% trailing year over year inflation. And it, it almost feels like the current trailing 7% feels like a lot less than the January of last year's 7%, just because now we're on the backside and we were close to double-digit territory um, at the time. Yeah. It, it's, it's all relative, right? So we, we yeah. went through that pain. I, as I was listening to you talk about the peak being in June, my mind just went back to these headlines and all these commentaries talking about the worst first half for U.S. equities since like 1970 or something like that. So it is historically uh, referenced poor performance. And th like you said, this is one of several asset classes that have experienced that, that type of market. And hasn't lived through really any inflation, right? Bitcoin's never seen inflation uh, show up ever. And you know, a lot of investors haven't really seen you know, meaningful inflation. What I think about is seeing the correlation of Bitcoin's price growth over the last 10 years following the global financial crisis and seeing the 
real yield being very low. And I remember comments from back in 2009 timeframe where we have to get used to the new normal. And the new normal at that point was very low interest rates, possibly negative interest rates. Now I would speculate that we are at a new point of getting used to a new normal where we do have inflation and we do have higher interest rates and real yield. So people who were looking at hedging against fiat currency using Bitcoin, now that they've have a different variable in the equation. Well, that's exactly what I was just going to ask because I think that's an interesting point, right? Like Bitcoin's never seen inflation until recently. And and so how do you think this plays for the narrative that Bitcoin's an inflation hedge? We did a little homework uh, before this. And, and one of the, the phrases that are out in here is you know, we heard, quote, Bitcoin is not an inflation hedge. Uh, a lot in 2022, and I've I've <laughs> talked about this like a lot. Is it's kind of a pet peeve of mine. Is like markets are always forward looking, and so what is the market telling us about the expectations of forward inflation? Well, the markets never baked in the fact that inflation was going to you know nine percent last year. Uh, but also at the same time, the markets were always looking through that inflation and effectively saying it's transitory. And, and so if we looked at like inflation break-evens, which is the difference between uh, forward nominal interest rates and forward tips yields, we can back out what the expectation is for inflation on an annualized basis going forward. If we look at 10-year tips, they started last year at 2.5%, right? So the expectation was for the next 10 years, the average inflation rate will be 2.5%. It peaked at 3%, and it ended the year lower than it started at 2.2%. So the markets never priced in an expectation of forward inflation. And so therefore, I think the whole phrase of like saying that Bitcoin failed as an inflation hedge is, is sort of flawed. I would never have made the argument, and still don't, that Bitcoin is a direct inflation hedge for backwards-looking CPI. It's all about what's the market expecting on a forward basis. And the market never never really wavered in any meaningful way, saying that there's going to be a bunch of inflation in the future. In fact, it did the opposite. It said, yeah, this is, this is transitory all the way through. And you can argue that the market's wrong, but that's what the market's saying. And so therefore, that's kind of by you know, a transitive property, what Bitcoin is sort of baking in. I love listening to you break this down, Jack. And I, I think about it because we all have our own opinions. But what anchors me is going back to here's the date. You know, we're in January of 2023. Three years ago, the world was watching uh, a, a, a situation start to unfold. None of us knew what was going to happen. So none of the folks that are in markets today, I would speculate, have lived through a global pandemic of this magnitude before. And that was really just the unknown. And markets can't price in those unknowns, those black swan types of events. So yeah. had we not had COVID, we would not have had so much uh, government intervention in terms of, of, of stimulus for the economy. And then obviously we had the supply chain issues. So it's going to take some time for all that to work its way through. Now we seem like we're in the corrective phase. It's been a pretty big whipsaw, I would say, based on you saying hot fastest that we've seen at rising rates um, historically. So yeah, th putting it in the context of the market and the forward looking, I, th I think really helps. But also because we're talking about the history, it's like, how do we get here and where are we going? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And forward-looking inflation never moved, but forward interest rates moved, right? Just 
interest rates, nominal yields rose. And so what was the net effect to real interest rates, which is the nominal interest rate minus the forward inflation expectation? Like, what are you actually earning as a bondholder is like the, the real, you know, forward real returns. What can you actually take home and then actually eat, like buy at the grocery store? What's the, what's the change? And so long-term forward real interest rates in Q4 of 2021 were 1%. Right, so if you were a bondholder, basically the market was saying the average bondholder is going to lose 1% in real terms uh, on a forward basis. Um, and, and that moved from minus 1% to now positive 1.3%. So there was a drastic change in forward real interest rates. The forward cost of capital rose from being negative to now being positive, and it moved 2.3% over the past, you know, just over a year. Um, and, and that increase is what I would argue really matters to assets like Bitcoin that are posing themselves as these monetary alternatives to traditional store of value assets. Um, and, and if you overlay, like there's a chart of, of Bitcoin versus inverse forward real interest rates, so Bitcoin versus tips yields, uh, you can see that the chart goes... Uh, basically forward real interest rates went straight up and the price of Bitcoin went straight down. And it makes sense because the opportunity cost of owning these alternative, potentially you could call them speculative assets or aspiring monetary assets, the opportunity cost rose. And so on a relative basis, where's capital going to flow? It's going to flow into these conservative assets. And you could argue, you could argue rightfully so. It's a risk reward dynamic, right? Yeah less risk for a reward that you would have been very happy with a couple of years ago. Do you, do you also feel like a big factor was uh, the feds giving us uh, free like cash airdrops or stimulus checks and people making a lot of bets on uh, Bitcoin, ETH or other coins right, well, in 2021? And then since, yeah. since there is more risk now, people have gone back to conservative assets? No, well, it's a great observation that basically, I mean, COVID was unprecedented and you had this this event, you closed down the entire system. And then, you know, you had like March of, of 20, 2020, right? If we go back to that time period, then the, the spigot from the Federal Reserve turns on of lowering interest rates and increasing the balance sheet. But at the same time, you had fiscal authorities also stepping in and giving out things like stimulus checks. And so you basically had monetary and fiscal authorities both stepping in, both sort of, uh, I don't know if you would say, you know, trying to put out the fire or, or igniting the fire, whatever the, the analogy you're using is. Um, and then both of those are now shut off in 2022, right? They're, they were both being closed. And so now you're in this different environment. And it, it gets to, I, I guess, what would be my next point is like Bitcoin throughout its history always lived in that the period of like easy money. And now we're in this period of time where I think you have to ask, is this a complete trend change or is this just a short-term reversal? And then eventually, like, we go through the middle of 2023, we have some sort of a recession potentially, maybe corporate earnings come down, and then maybe the spigots get turned back on again, right? That's the ultimate question that I think really matters to crypto is, is this you know, is it repriced to a new environment now and this is just the new normal? Or is this just, you know, this short-term period of time um, that, that isn't representative of the long-term trend that we've seen throughout all of Bitcoin's history? And I don't, I don't necessarily have the answer to that question. I think that's highly relevant, though. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just keep thinking of the analogy of the tide. You know, it's an ebb and a flow, and sometimes the high tide is a little bit higher and the low tide is a little bit lower. 
what's how is this going to normalize? I think is the question going forward under these different financial conditions. Yeah, and then so so sort of a, a couple of closing points, I guess. Uh, in 2022, we also saw sort of all-time high correlations between crypto, Bitcoin, ETH, uh, and traditional risky assets. So the S&P or like tech-heavy Nasdaq was was technically like a, a more highly correlated uh, asset, and that and that would make sense. Um, since 2020, we have seen elevated levels of correlation, but 2022 was was really the highest we've ever seen, and as a result. I think ultimately what matters for uh, large risky assets, and I'm thinking you know, U.S. tech, U.S. equities, uh, I do think that that does matter by, by sort of that property of allocators see crypto as being th- you know, f- even more risky than, than equities. Um, and so what matters to equities? Well, I think last year was a story of repricing based on interest rates rising. Um, I think that that story has sort of played out for the most part. Um, I think this year is a story of what do those interest rate increases do to the actual underlying economy once they get baked in? Because it doesn't happen overnight. It's not just like you know, the Fed moves rates from, from zero to 100, and then the next day everything falls apart. It's, it's really you know, slowly over time, everybody's repricing that debt and rolling over debt, and then that has an impact on you know, corporate earnings. And I think that corporate earnings, even though they have nothing to do with Bitcoin, they have nothing to do with Ethereum as networks, ultimately impact the pricing of those networks because it's going to impact overall sentiment um, for investors. And so I think in 2023, that, that corporate earnings actually end up mattering in the short term for the performance of crypto assets. And then, and then sort of lastly, uh, I think in 2020 and 2021, uh, we did see like this shift of traditional investors. I think of like the, the line, I think it was the summer of 2020 when Paul Tudor Jones said, you know, Bitcoin is the, the fastest horse in the race. And we saw folks like Bill Miller on CNBC, um, Kathy Wood, uh, other, other folks that were investing in Bitcoin and in the crypto space. Um, and it was sort of like this period of time you felt like the asset class was getting de-risked. Well, 2022 felt like it was the opposite. Right now, the, the risk comes back on. Uh, allocators are repositioning their portfolios away from things that are perceived as risky assets. And I think the bigger picture, these are just sort of you know cyclical changes that you see from time to time. But there's still a, a camp of traditional investors that don't think that this is a legitimate asset class. And I think that at some point, you know, whenever we do see a return to potentially to and through old all-time highs as this asset class continues to sort of grow, it, m- it might not be in 2023. I don't know. Um, but I do think that this, this cycle and this drawdown will be sort of the last time that we have a large camp of doubters for crypto and Bitcoin. I don't know if you guys agree with that. Um, but it does feel like this is the you know, third, fourth, fifth time, depending on what you want to look at the crypto space as, of having drawdowns that are 60%, 70% when people come out of the woodworks and say, see, I told you so, it was all a speculative bubble. Yeah. How many yeah. times can that actually happen? Before? I mean, I hope so. You know, I think, I think one of the challenges, you know, I think the macro environment, and I'd be curious to get your take on like the order of operations that we've seen here. Like that might've been like the, the first, like macro factors was like the first domino to fall. And obviously we saw a tremendous amount of failures in lending and, you know, with what happened with FTX. And I think all of that kind of compounded into a lot of ammunition for the doubters, right? And so I think, 
to your point, I think there's like an opportunity when we come out of this to be, you know, much more strongly positioned so that we never find ourselves in this position again. And like, it all kind of speaks to changing the narrative around Bitcoin as not necessarily a risk asset, right? Um, which may or may not happen. Um, but I do think like the de- there's been some damage done here, yeah. right? I want to quickly jump in because I think it's really funny to hear Jack talk about how traditional capital allocators are now moving to conservative assets. Even MakerDAO put down $500 million in like US treasury bonds. Yeah. So, so I think everybody- It's all about finding yield, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Stability and yield. Right. Point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Jack. Yeah. So, so part of um, Bitcoin and crypto becoming a legitimate asset is you do need regulation and a regulatory framework. So Jason, yeah. well, I'll pass it to you. Yeah, I th- I, it is pretty interesting. And I think because we saw so many challenges come to the surface in the last year, particularly whether it was bad business practices or bad risk management or outright fraud, there are, as Ryan said, more ammunition available to the folks who are doubters, but also the folks who want to bring uh, regulation, and I'll say thoughtful regulation, to this evolving market Um, in these various assets. So definitely going to talk a little bit about what's going on in the U.S., but because we are U.S.-centric, I thought it might be interesting to start out with some uh, interesting things that happened around the world last year. So most people who are in the Bitcoin space say, oh, El Salvador as a nation has accepted Bitcoin for currency. That is true. And they've also had recently their minister of economy came out and introduced a bill announcing intention to fund development of a Bitcoin city. Now, that is interesting. You know, I don't have any strong opinions on that, but a lot of people do. So I'm just going to acknowledge that that El Salvador has been making progress. But we did see recently that Brazil has also moved to allow crypto to be used as payments. So you're seeing it uh, in the larger country as well. But thinking about Asia, everyone thinks crypto, China, there was a ban. They banned miners uh, for Bitcoin. But what else is going on? It turns out that last year, uh, maybe below many people's radars, is that China, Shanghai People's Court issued a ruling saying that Bitcoin is subject to property rights laws and regulations. So acknowledging it as as an asset class. We saw in India that there are new proposed crypto tax policies. So again, not so much of a ban, but more of a, okay, this is going to be here. How How do we regulate it? How do we tax it? And then in Singapore, we also saw recently uh, two stablecoin issuers were granted uh, major payments to institution licenses so that those assets can be used for payments. And then more recently in the UK, uh, following the collapse of, of the FTX uh, entities, the UK Treasury has sought regulatory amendments so that the Financial Conduct Authority would be able to oversee the operations and advertising of crypto companies. So again, signals around the globe that these assets are in fact uh, maturing. And the EU in particular has been forward with respect to their regulation, but they also have announced that their DLT sandbox is going to enable the use of stable coins for settlement against security transactions. So pretty interesting. Um, and, and sticking with the EU, I just wanted to, to hit on a, a couple of key aspects of what's known as the Markets and Crypto Asset Regulation, or MECA. Um, it's a wide-ranging regulatory framework uh, looking at crypto assets and re- related activities. But the goal is to uh, essentially apply money laundering, consumer protection, 
and accountability of crypto companies and environmental impact rules into the market. But one of the things I find really interesting about Mika is that it defines crypto assets as, and I quote, a digital representation of a value or a right which may be transferred and stored electronically using distributed ledger technology or similar technology. So there you have it. You have a regulatory definition of a crypto asset. The question is, who regulates? Is it securities? Is it commodities? You know, we see this in the U.S., but in the EU, they've come forward with that the ESMA, or the European Securities and Markets Authority, is on point to develop guidelines that will clarify the interaction between existing EU financial services regs for assets deemed, quote-unquote, financial instruments, and the new aspects of Mika that draw the clear delineation between crypto assets covered under existing regulations versus uh, financial instruments. So it is definitely a step in the right direction, but it does mean that you will have a securities regulator being ESMA, as well as the European Banking Authority involved in overseeing those activities at the European Union level. And I, if I remember correctly, I think that gets voted uh, around February 2023, That's which right. is really interesting. So I think that would be a story to look out for. Yeah, they recently delayed the voting. I think it was supposed to take part uh, earlier in uh, November or December, but they pushed it back to be uh, sometime next month. And I think the, the other really interesting thing is the European Union countries will have the opportunity to set their own rules. But at the union level, they'll have the oversight of ESMA and the European Bank Authority. But the other really important aspect of this legislative framework is that it separates crypto assets into three categories. And I think you start getting into rules that are fit for purpose based on the type of asset uh, category. So you have e-money tokens, which are essentially seeking to have a stable reference to a single currency. So think stable coins, uh, fiat single currency stable coins. They also have asset reference tokens, which are looking to maintain a stable value from uh, other value or combination of different currencies. So you can think about a basket. And third, you have all other crypto assets. So things like utility tokens. Yeah. And I think we spoke about this earlier as well, but they deliberately uh, discount any sort of non-fungible asset, right? So so when you think about ARTs or e-money tokens, they are... They could be stable coins, they could be other tokens, but it specifically does not look at uh, the non-fungible tokens. That's right. That's right. So uh, pretty interesting. You know, with the vote anticipated this year in February, the expectation for implementation would be about 18 to 24 months after that. So you're really looking out into 2024 for actual implementation should this pass. Does that add any feet to the fire for U.S. regulators, so to speak, of hey, here's large regulatory bodies that are, that are actually making real progress here if, if you know, they have the votes to pass? Um, it's an interesting question. I would speculate that it, it really doesn't because I think each country's regulators want to be operating on their own time frame. I think what it does do, though, is give a reference point. And I think uh, if, if you think about... Um, international cooperation around finance, and you think about the, the G7, the G10, et cetera, you think about um, the, the cross-border collaboration, I think there will be some interest. There may be some uh, very common interests and some common applications, but I don't know that it changes the time frame. And I, I think, um, going, speaking of the U.S., we saw there was uh, 
in March of the, of 2022 that the Biden administration had put forward an executive order on ensuring responsible development of digital assets. And that executive order was focused on uh, trying to motivate different agencies to come up with reporting and frameworks for how we could support responsible innovation, but also maintain um, financial stability, mitigate uh, systemic risk, provide consumer protections for investors and businesses, and also help promote and maintain the U.S. leadership in technology and economic competitiveness. So when you think about it, there are lots of motivating factors for established uh, countries to try and put forward rules and regulations that allow for their industry to advance, but also protect the interests that they have. And what I also found interesting was this particular executive order um, asked for or called for the exploration of a U.S. central bank digital currency. We hear a lot about various countries around the globe coming forward with CBDCs or being in various stages. I think this is a study. This is not calling for there to be a U.S. CBDC. We've seen lots of projects around that, whether it's Digital Dollar Project or Project Hamilton, where MIT collaborated with the Boston Fed. The point is, we need to understand how this technology could be potentially influencing the evolution of our markets, whether it's in payments or settlements, or generally speaking, how, how will we react to other changes around the world? Yeah. When you think about payments, especially in the U.S., I, I'm particularly super interested in these stablecoin regulation bills that have been going around. And I'd love to know what your take is um, on them. Because I know um, one of the bigger factors was the whole uh, UST uh, crackdown where a lot of people lost money in the stablecoin and algorithmic stablecoin. And then you saw a lot of people talking about stablecoin regulation, which is uh, so much needed in the U.S. Uh, I wonder what's, what, what happened in 2022. Yeah, so there, there's been a few different proposals, uh, and I'll say draft bills that have circulated around the houses of Congress, because again, some are Senate, uh, some are working through the House. Uh, a couple that I would share, you know, folks may remember that uh, we had the, the Lummis-Gillibrand bill brought forward, um, again, so bipartisan legislation to senators, and it was deemed the Responsible Financial Innovation Act. And that was geared towards dividing digital assets, again, three buckets, commodities, securities, and ancillary assets. But one of the provisions of that bill is that it creates a structure for regulated stable coins whose sponsors, and I'm, I'm quoting from the bill here, shall maintain high quality liquid assets equal to not less than 100% of the face amount of the value of the issued stable coins with high quality defined as U.S. currency, treasury bonds, Federal Reserve balances, and other well-established cash-like instruments. So the point being, algorithmic stable coin wouldn't fit this bucket. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you want to have stability. In, in some respects, it, it's as if you are looking at something akin to a, a stable value, that or stable value product. What they also called for in this bill was the creation of uh, financial regulatory sandboxes that would allow crypto projects to work uh, in for a maximum of two years without the risk of being shut down by regulators. So you have the opportunity to experiment and, and bring things forward. So that, that's one, uh, one piece of legislation that was proposed. A few highlights from that. And another one um, was actually um, put forward by retiring Senator uh, Toomey, who just a few weeks ago put forward 
the Stablecoin Transparency of Reserves and Uniform Safe Transactions Act, or Trust Act. And some of the key components from the legislation proposed by Senator Toomey were that it encouraged competition by authorizing several types of regulated entities to issue payment stablecoins. Um, it was encouraging uh, the enhanced financial stability for all payment stablecoins be backed by high-quality liquid assets, so similar to the Lummis Gillibrand. And also talking about establishing transparency by subjecting all payment stablecoin issuers to standard disclosures and attestations of uh, registered accounting firms. So I c- could go on and on, but the point is that they are pushing to ensure that a stablecoin can be defined. Uh, you know, in the case of, of Mr. Toomey's bill, it said, you know, there is much needed clarity that at minimum, stablecoins that do not offer interest are not securities. So you still have this question of if it's backed by securities, is it in fact a security itself as opposed to something that's backed by balances on deposit at a bank where it's a fractional reserve banking system? So I think personally, there is a lot of room for continued discussion and debate and education around the various proposed legislative actions. But I I think from a a U.S. perspective, payments, you may see uh, some broader utilization of stable coins. You're also, again, doing that against the backdrop where the Federal Reserve is trying to come up with a 24 by 7 payment network called FedNow. So I I do think that there's a lot of interest and a lot of energy behind that. Yeah. Payments is still the best use case of crypto. I'm kind of putting you on the spot, Jason, here, but I I feel like this is the first time... um, in, in 2022, where I saw a lot of regulatory stories, right? Or a lot of news around regulation. What's your outlook at the end of 2022? Is it positive, negative, or is it meh? <laughs> like, yeah. That's a great question. So personally, when I think about this, the amount of news coverage related to regulatory stories, I'm not surprised at all. I've been anticipating this. I think if you've been in regulated markets for a while, you understand that there are regulations for good reason. And sometimes that that framework can take a while to hash out, but it is ultimately there to provide a mature uh, market infrastructure for participants to be able to interact in a way that is deemed, I'll call it stable, and not necessarily volatility of the pricing, but the market infrastructure is stable. And that you have protections in place. So I think about, uh, for example, some of these centralized lenders that had challenges and they, they had bad or unlucky risk management practices, you know, call it whatever you will, and they didn't have adequate collateral to cover their exposure. Those things, similar, similar experiences actually contributed to the Dodd-Frank bill in post-global financial crisis. So in many ways, I look at this as... Uh, albeit a long road, but a positive development because when you have the rules of the road established, then more participants feel comfortable engaging. What I do still, and what I'm still challenged with is the territorial discussion around which authorities will regulate which aspects or types of assets in the U.S. So when I look at some of these other countries that are having uh, more clear roadmaps, that to me is also a positive thing because you'll see that you'll have an opportunity to see evolution in a different place where in the U.S. we have the world's largest, most liquid, stable, I'll call them stable, functioning uh, securities markets in, in banking system. And I think that's a very important thing. You want to make sure that any of these new activities, these new regulations can allow that 
to maintain systemic risk mitigation, but also maintain a leading position from innovation. So I think that the, ultimately these regulatory evolution will, will help with that. And I, I'd even take a look and, and say, from an, one of the bigger stories of the year we, we had was uh, that a technology, uh, a crypto mixing technology, decentralized technology, Tornado Cash, wound up being the first software ever sanctioned by the Treasury's OFAC. And what that really did was it, it led to a lot of questions. Is this really, can you sanction technology? The answer here is yes. Um, people are questioning it. There are some folks who are pushing back. I know there's at least one, one lawsuit. But the, the point is that when OFAC came forward, and I'm, I'm looking at a quote from a uh, gentleman, Brian Nelson, who's the Undersecretary of the Treasury for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence, the ultimate goal of the sanction is not to punish, but to bring about positive change in behavior. So I think that's important. Most of the users of that technology were not engaged in illicit activities, but there were some who were. And I think by taking this step, the, the objective wasn't to punish, it was to push for more um, compliant behaviors. Now, whether or not everyone agrees with that, it's personal perspective, I think it's net positive. I think we saw the, in the shift of Ethereum to proof of stake, we saw a lot of the validators utilizing um, technology that ensured that they would be compliant with OFAC. Again, differences of opinion based on, on where you are in the world. But I think ultimately that, that comment about the goal being to, to bring about positive change in behavior resonates with me. Um, so I'd say it's a, a lot to watch for in the coming year. I think to, like, to your earlier point, we've, we've never really seen this much attention on these issues, right? And so I, I find it really hard to see a path where we don't see some legislative action this year on, on some front, particularly around the stablecoin topic. Well, I think the important thing here is it's education. Yeah. And as, as the, the membership of these legislative bodies changes, some new members may have a background, or you know, there may be even more of a need to go in and have the industry help educate these folks. So yeah. I think it's really important that legislation be made from an informed perspective as opposed to a reactive perspective. And I think that is an opportunity for the industry. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Should we jump into mining? So yeah, so there's there's a couple of things here that I think make sense to to unpack a little bit. Um, as I reflected on the last year, as I mentioned earlier, you know it hasn't been the most positive year for miners. We came out of 2021. It was post Chinese ban, right? Um, we saw a significant drop in hash rate, probably the largest in, in at least recent times. Following that. Um, you know, it was it was a pretty great time to be a miner, right? It was record profitability. Um, you know, we saw you know high demand for hardware, high demand for hosting space, um, and through the end of 2021 into 2022, and even in the beginning of 2022, I would say the market was still looking really good. But what 2022 really turned out to be was high margin compression amongst miners. And there's a couple of uh, variables there that I think are worth calling out. First is, you know, increasing hash rate, which, um, you know, we're continuing to see today, right? Um, and people always ask me, miners seem like they're in turmoil. How come we're, we're continuing to see hash rate and mining difficulty kind of test all-time highs? And I, I think there's two things there. The first is the older generation hardware is no longer profitable to run. And so we've seen a lot of that hardware come offline and kind of is now sitting on the sidelines and has been replaced with what is, you know, far more efficient, far more powerful hardware. Compounding that, that hardware now because of down probably... 
I would say 75 to 85% in 2022 in terms of what it's able to get for a terahash per dollar. Um, people are, who have the capital are, are making you know sizable investments because now is frankly a decent time to refresh your fleet or to expand your fleet. And so um, both of those variables, I would say, is the reason why we're continuing to see that hash rate test the all-time highs. Um, you know, if you put gas in your car or heat your home or pay an electric bill, you know that. I just got my first winter electric bill and it yeah, was double. I got my first gas bill and I almost passed out. Um, you know that due to geopolitical events, you know, energy markets have been in relative turmoil, particularly in the second half of this year. And miners being such an intensive energy industry are particularly impacted by this. It's their singular largest cost input other than the the, um, the ASIC hardware. And so that has created a sizable issue for them when you think about the cost side of the equation. Um, and then kind of the cherry on top, as if it couldn't get any better, right, is just what we've seen and what we've talked about kind of in the broader markets. Um, you know, Bitcoin's down, you know, 65 to 70% um, since the beginning of the year. And I've said it before, but if you're not super familiar with the mining industry, miners' revenue is denominated in Bitcoin, right? And so their revenue in fiat terms, uh, and it's worth noting all of their, their liabilities are denominated in fiat terms. It's never been, well, I shouldn't say never been lower, but it, it's dramatically lower than it was um, you know, a year ago, certainly. And so, again, that has resulted kind of on the whole as significantly compressed margins. Depends on how you want to calculate it and look at it, but it's probably 70, again, to 80% lower than where we were a year ago. And so, yeah. So could, could this be because of a really specific business model that most public mining companies have, which is A, borrow millions of dollars, uh, B, buy a bunch of ASIC mining rigs, C, do the actual mining, uh, pay for those costs, which are close to 80%, and then uh, sell your Bitcoins and keep whatever's left. Yeah, I mean, that, that, so, yes, a little bit of a simplification, but I mean, that is the model, at least at a very high level. And coming out of 2021 into 2022, you know, when we, we saw basically record highs for the pricing on the ASICs, which is very highly correlated to the price of Bitcoin, you had, you know, large mining firms taking on a huge amount of debt to be able to fund their, you know, their expansions, right? And so what that led to is really high levels of leverage. And then once the market started to turn, you know, they, they had all of these kind of, you know, debt-laden companies that were having a really hard time, you know, paying back the the loans that they had. And it's a great question um, just around the financing piece of it. You know, we had really pretty loose capital markets. Like it was good. There was cheap money, low interest rates. Um, you know, one of the most common, um, you know, forms of financing is, you know, collateralized lending through ASIC backed loans, right? So the hardware itself is, is, is the collateral that's backing the loan. Those loans notoriously have fairly high interest rates compared to other, you know, forms of, of financing, probably in the, you know, depending on who you are, 10 to 20%, right? That's expensive debt, right? And so, um, you know, that, that I would think, to say is one of the biggest inputs into the other theme, right? Which is consolidations, reorgs, um, and then just kind of general deleveraging. So, you know, as, as I said, you know, 2021 into 2022, aggressively growing their businesses, taking on a ton of debt. And what we've seen since then is, is really kind of a deleveraging because there, I think there was this kind of general acknowledgement that if you have a lot of debt on the balance sheet, which again is expensive, you, you may not make it through this, this crypto winter. And I hear you talk about that. And honestly, I don't see much difference between Bitcoin mining and other industries. It's the same market dynamics, just different products. Yeah. 
it just happens to be that this is one of the focus areas that powers this industry. You know, so um, it is, it's really about discipline, right? I think at this point, it's fiscal discipline for a lot of those miners that are in place today. And, you know, looking at the cost of capital and what is it, do you have variable or do you have fixed rates? Right. And so that's the other big piece, right? It's, it's the, the financing and then kind of how much debt you or leverage you had. And then the other piece is just really around the power side of things, right? So when margins were, you know, very kind of cushy, right? I think people signed PPAs, power purchase agreements um, that were suboptimal, right? You know, you really want a fixed you know, fixed rate power purchase agreement long term to kind of lock in your power rates and help insulate versus, you know, against short term fluctuations in the market. If you didn't have that, you had a really difficult time this year because, you know, as I just said, power markets got very wonky. You're paying wholesale prices and mass, right? This is, these are large industrial sized loads. And so, you know, they, they were, you know, they saw a significant uptick in their costs in terms of, in terms of what it was to run their operations. Um, this of course led to some very notable Notable bankruptcies in the space. The first being Compute North, um, one of the largest co-hosting providers in the United States. They filed for bankruptcy in September due to you know a number of issues, um, including you know financing around construction of one of their biggest sites basically falling through. Um, and then you know later in the year, Core Scientific, just before the end of the year, also filed for bankruptcy after warning that they may have to do so earlier in the year. Um, and you know basically attributed to what we just talked about, right? Increasing costs decreasing revenue, whether it's because of difficulty going up or for other reasons. Um, and so this has kind of sent a ripple effect through the industry, right? Um, it's created significant opportunity for the players who do have cash. Um, another story, like Argo Blockchain, um, they had inadvertently, I think, published a, a notice that they are filing for bankruptcy, right? Um, and they didn't ultimately end up having to do so um, because they received $100 million from Galaxy, $65 million of which um, was a purchase of their their largest kind of flagship site um, in, in Texas. That Galaxy is now going to take over and the another $35 million um, as an asic back loan um, to kind of provide you know, them, them with the kind of adequate um, liquidity that they're going to need, uh, you know, at least in the medium term. And so I um, I would expect that we are going to see continued um, consolidations, right, um, as, and, and restructuring as we kind of move through, you know, what, what many are saying is going to be a prolonged um, winter, right? Um, and so it's really going to be the people, again, who have, you know, locked in their power rates, who have, you know, cash on the balance sheet that are going to be the best positioned to, to not only to survive, um, but to grow kind of, you know, through, through the next market cycle. So, and this is just a little back of the napkin math that I just ran. Looks like we're in an 18% drawdown from all-time high of hash rate, which peaked in October of 2022. Mm. Um, a couple months ago, I had looked at, like, what were the largest decreases in hash rate? Uh, and two large decreases uh, came up. October through December of 2018, it's basically bear market minor capitulation. And we saw a hash rate draw down 46%. The price of Bitcoin drew down 50% was cut in half. The other big one you mentioned was the, the China mining ban, April to July of 2021. That was a 71% decrease in hash rate, which of course sort of quickly recovered. But both of those were you know 46 and 71% decreases in hash rate. We're only down about 20%. Do you think that this 
continues? I, it's an impossible question to ask, of course. No, yeah, it's a, it, but it's a great question. The short answer is like the, the, the bankruptcies that we've seen, like that hasn't really been realized in hash rate. Right. I would say that's smaller operations because those like the, the you know, Compute North, Core Scientific, those facilities are still largely running. Right. Um, the 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 drop off that we have seen is, again, like I would say minor, you know, either those those entities or others, public or private, that are bringing, you know, less efficient hardware off, you know, offline um, or, you know, they don't have, you know, again, the, the appropriate power in place, um, power agreements in place. I would say. Those two events that you just listed, this is we're in a very different situation. Obviously, the the ban in China, singular kind yeah. of event, right? Um, and then the 2018, um, you know, drawdown and hash rate, like the industry looked a lot different then, right? There's a lot more at stake now yep. where there's way more capital has been invested. And so I think you're going to see, you're going to see much more resistance on the lower bound that makes sense. Um, because because they've made the investments in the hardware and without running the hardware, you essentially have, you know, a very expensive paperweight, right? So if you can even get close to break even, you're going to continue to run the machines because again, you've made the investment, presumably have some payment that you're going to need to make on even the hardware. Even if someone goes bankrupt, right? Somebody else is going to own those rigs. They may own them, but can they operate them? It's it's not, well, they have to be profitable, you know, right? Like, depending and, on the, and Core the will, reor- it sounds like are, is going to reorganize, compute north, a lot of those assets. Assets have been sold off or, you know, reclaimed by, you know, different lenders, right? And so, um, th- yeah, they still exist, right? They're still going to continue to pr- uh, produce hash rate out of those sites. Jack, this, this piece of information is going to blow your mind. And I recently came across this. But in 2022, Bitcoin miners sold all their Bitcoin. <laughs> all, the, all the Bitcoins that they mined were, was pretty much sold. So the top 10 public Bitcoin miners uh, mined close to 40,700 Bitcoins. And this sold close to 40,300 Bitcoins. Yeah. So, so you can see that they're pretty much, uh, I mean, it, it, does, it didn't look good in 2022. For and, a, and a lot of that, a lot of that was the repayment of debt. And it doesn't, and it doesn't speak to the inventory that they built up over time, but it does speak to the operating uh, cost. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, Ryan, one of the things I wanted to ask you about uh, in sort of pin, uh, building off of Jack's comment around hash rate, we are seeing some stories out there about Bitcoin miners being reactive to the grids where they operate yeah, and actually yeah, shutting down as a way to actually help stabilize a grid. Yeah, that's a great point. And that's one of my other themes. It's, it's really just the, the kind of very unique relationship between mining and energy and energy markets. Um, obviously, I covered it in kind of a negative light, but we are starting to see a fair amount of innovation around this, particularly on the demand response side. So in places like Texas, where there has been just huge inflow of capital and thus, you know, investment in, you know, new mining facilities there, you're starting to see a much higher degree of cooperation between these miners and the grids that they're connected to because they have to. When you're talking about, you know, gigawatts of energy, right? It's very meaningful in terms of the overall grid, particularly in Texas. And there have been several events this year, um, you know, largely weather events, weather events where the miners have had to shut down and that's either in good faith or it's dictated based on the PPA that they've signed that in these extreme events, you know, these, these tail events and these few days during the year when it's the hottest in Texas that they'll, you know, curtail or turn off their loads. You know, that is a very positive externality that I think, you know, didn't 
we kind of talked about it, but it wasn't really proven out. And we have some really good evidence this, you know, of what happened this year that, hey, there could actually be something here um, that, you know, it will be something that we'll see kind of longer term. So, yeah, you know, the other side of that, um, which is really interesting and will be will be something that we're going to want to watch for next year is there's often some sort of incentive, whether it's, you know, you're securing a cheaper power rate or you're getting some sort of credits back for, for participating in these programs. And that's actually proven to be quite a lucrative, um, you know, a lucrative uh, endeavor for these miners. Um, you know, I think I saw there was a story earlier in the year around Core um, and Riot doing this and receiving, you know, millions in credit back, um, you know, from the utilities for doing it, right? And so it's kind of this in a time when, you know, miners are looking for all sources of revenue and maximizing as much as they possibly can, kind of adds this, this you know, unique revenue source um, that's kind of completely independent from whatever the, you know, the crypto markets are doing. So I think we'll see more of that and we, because it will be necessitated by the sheer scale of mining in these, in these locations, you know, Georgia, Texas, Kentucky, you know, as, as we see more and more hash rate come online and more power consumed, well, Guess what? They're going to need to have you know you know more integration with with the local grid. Um, the other piece that you know I think we saw a lot of, um, and I anticipate we'll see a lot more of next year, is just around integration with renewables. You know we had you know a bunch of companies focused just on this. Um, you know of course um, you know Block and and Tesla um, announcing that they're going to, uh, and, and Blockstream, that they're going to be doing a solar, you know, looking at solar and battery storage, kind of integrated with, um, you know, Bitcoin mining operation. That'll be really interesting. But there's also people who are, who are co-locating with, wind, with windmills, um, with solar, you know, production sites. Um, and, you know, again, it's about finding the lowest marginal cost of energy, which happens to be renewable, right? And so I think as we see those, you know, more and more of those sites built, um, you know, in Texas and other places, um, you're, you're going to see, again, more cooperation between the, between the miners and, you know, the, the people, you know, infrastructure uh, companies that are building it's, those it's out. It's really exciting to see all the innovation happening with its methane recovery and, and Yeah, there's so much like innovation, that. right? You know, I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head, you know, flare gas is something that, again, we talked about for quite some time, um, you know, and, and flare remediation, but it kind of was relatively small scale where the good, one of the good things with this most recent bull run is people are actually taking this very, this industry very seriously now. Um, and you saw, you know, some announcements around some relatively large oil and gas players saying, Hey, we're, we're taking a harder look at this now because we have this problem that we, you know, we're flaring in certain parts of North America and this can actually be, you know, a way to kind of um, deal with this issue while we're able to monetize those gas streams. So again, I think we'll, we'll see, we'll see more there as well. Final, given just the sheer scale of mining and kind of the migration of, of hash rate from China to North America, as you'd expect, and as we saw with other crypto market related events, was just an increase in regulatory interest, right? Um, I would say the most notable, you know, development on the regulatory front was the, the moratorium in New York State. That obviously was met with a lot of pushback from the industry. It's basically a two-year moratorium on on new permits um, and, and permit renewals for expansion. Um, if you're using green energy, you, you, chances are you'll be able to kind of get past that. But if it's any sort of, um, you know, emitting source, it's for the next two years, they're, they're kind of 
you know, pressing the brake there while they do a, you know, feasibility study and, and um, kind of determine what the long-term impact of mining will be. You're starting to see similar um, similar actions in Quebec, another mining kind of center, um, because, you know, demand has, you know, I think grown much faster than they had anticipated in Quebec. And then, you know, just from just from um, Congress, you know, we've seen, you know, calls to the EPA to start looking into mining, you know, the problem here is good data doesn't really exist um, around kind of overall consumption, overall emissions. You know, Cambridge does it on a network level, um, and I would say they've kind of become the gold standard for this in terms of total energy consumption. And now this year announced um, or released their greenhouse gas emissions index as well. Um, but, you know, I think in the U.S. in particular, because of the nature of our, our grids and our power markets, um, there's kind of an interest in kind of aggregating that data. Now, we haven't seen any material movement, but there have certainly been calls from lawmakers, um, again, primarily to the APA to start looking at this. So that'll, uh, you know, of course, be something to watch. So, yeah, I mean, you know, that kind of uh, very high level, pretty quick. I think, you know, the coming year is going to be challenging. And I think it kind of, it, it is, it basically runs parallel to the rest of the market. Um, as I said, you probably haven't seen, um, you know, all of the failure that you're going to see as people cons- continue to consolidate. You will see more consolidations. There's going to be tremendous opportunity for the firms that have the capital to be able to kind of sustain this, these, you know, prolonged market conditions, um, you know, in terms of acquiring distressed assets um, and being able to use that as a means of scaling their business. I think that'll be, you know, a big theme that we see. And, you know, it, things that we may never see again, Parth, you referenced like, uh, you know, amassing huge treasuries. We probably won't see that anytime soon, right? Just because of what's happening with their, the capital markets and how they were kind of funding their operations. I think this whole kind of collateralized ASIC back lending market has, has cooled significantly, basically came to a stop, you know, towards the end of the year. Um, I think, you know, financing these operations, a lot of, a lot of the kind of, um, lending institutions that were heavily involved in this market accrued significant losses over the last couple of months. There's been a lot of defaults. Yeah. Like, you know, there's, there's a ton. Right. Um, And so I think, you know, that is going to be financing these operations is going to be a hard, harder sell in the future. So that might put a damper on things. Um, But speaking to the kind of treasury management piece of it, I think it's going to necessitate, um, you know, selling the Bitcoin kind of more actively and not being able to maybe amass these huge stockpiles within their treasuries. That's like other industries, right? Where you're just trying to, you're managing the balance sheet. Uncorrelated liquidity. Yeah. U.S. dollars. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And then, you know, we're going to continue to see hash rate grow. Difficulty is going to continue to increase. Um, I don't think any of that changes. Um, I think, again, those with, you know, fixed price power agreements are going to be the ones best positioned to survive this winter. The industry obviously looks a lot different than it did a year ago. And I think will look a lot different when we come out of, when we move into the next market cycle. So that that's it, right? I think, you know, one other thing very quickly you know, 2022 was the year of mining in the U.S. I think um, moving into 2023 and beyond, you're going to start to see more investments made abroad. Um, I think thanks to like technology advancements like immersion cooling, you can operate these these facilities in places that 
previously were very energy rich, but maybe not necessarily conducive to mining. And so I think, you know, that'll be something to watch in the coming year. But overall, I know that was kind of like a math <laughs> to quote you um, update, but like, you know, I'm, I'm fairly optimistic, right? I think like there's a lot to look forward to. I think there's, there's going to be a lot to watch in the coming year and yeah, we'll see what happens. And you guys have been so pessimistic about 2022. Let me, let me bring some positivity yeah, yeah. by talking please, about Please DeFi. do. <laughs> I'm upbeat. I'm yeah. upbeat. There's a lot to do. <laughs> So, Sorry, I'm a minor. Like it's really, really hard to be <laughs> optimistic. Like. So, um, so I know we're going to talk about DeFi. I know it's been. I, I think this is our longest podcast ever. I don't know. Yeah. What I really uh, decided for my theme was to talk about utility of digital assets, um, especially within DeFi and NFTs. Right. So, if you think about the previous bull cycles, right. So, if you think about 2021 or even 2017, 2018, it was mostly about crypto adoption in the first 10 percent of the population. So the early adopters. But now, if you need to penetrate the world and scale this to the next 70%, you need, you need to bridge things that people already use in their real life, right? And I think that's kind of the key where I, I really want to talk about how digital assets can be used as utilities. So I'm talking about stuff like real estate, uh, private equity, private credit lines, uh, or just the ability of using my digital assets, my NFTs, uh, in social media, which I use every day, right? So that's that's kind of what I'm hinting at. So um, I think it's fair to say a lot of times we feel like we are in our own bubble, right? So when we talk about DeFi, when we talk about crypto, uh, people are using Ethereum or any sort of uh, currency. They trade and then they, they trade into options, perps, make some more magic money, burn some magic money, and that's it, right? So we are so, uh, so, so we, are, we are in this closed bubble, where we barely interact with real world assets. Mm. But I think 2022 was really unique where you saw a lot of connections between real world and um, crypto, right? And I just want to talk about those. So I guess uh, with respect to my theme on what did 2022 do to combine crypto assets with TradFi, I think I have it based around three different things. And I, I want to know what you guys think about it. So the first is convergence of TradFi yields in DeFi, right? The second is, NFTs in the real world or real utility of NFTs uh, and the rise or probably the birth of social, decentralized social media. So decentralized social media as a category was not something which existed before 2022, but now it's, it's on to become one of the biggest, coolest thing in DeFi. Mm. And then I guess the third is efforts by big financial companies or big companies in general like Stripe or Apple uh, to build on-ramp infrastructure for more crypto adoption. Um, so what, what do you guys think? First thoughts? I think the, the social media piece is interesting, right? Because I think there's a lot of different kind of variables there. I think one of the one of the most compelling value propositions to me is kind of just like the decentralized nature. And I know we've talked about it in the past of the infrastructure in which it's running on. Like, I think that's a really unique kind of difference from our traditional kind of social media uh, platforms that we know and maybe love, maybe don't, right? And like, I think it's it's coming at a time where there's actually like a general distrust. Yeah, 
you know, in, in some of those platforms and, you know, maybe others are perceived as who knows what's, you know, here today, gone tomorrow, like who knows what's going to happen. Right. Um, so I think like it's a really unique market opportunity, um, that kind of enables people to have, um, you know, run on decentralized rails. It enables people to kind of, uh, kind of communicate and interface in the way that they are today with the added benefit of, oh, by the way, you have way more say over kind of your identity, you know, the assets that are owned on these platforms and like the way that you interact with people. Like it's, it's way more self-sovereign than what we're used to. That one also feels like it's not just about number go up where even like, right. even like it, NFTs are like about finance, art, but right? at the same time, who are a lot of people that are trading them? They're like speculators yeah. that want to make more ETH. So, right, it's same thing with DeFi. Yep. It's like we we have some real world assets, but I not see a so lot. many tweets about long. successfully converting ten thousand to three hundred trading NFTs. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're like, I mean, it's funny that it happens all the time, but I, I think I think it's an interesting dynamic. You're right because it is more about ownership, and I think that ownership is something that people desire. At the same point in time, people don't yet fully understand how to own and how to demonstrate ownership. So I see a lot of communication around, here's my public key for my decentralized social platform identity. Uh, but I, part of the thing about, like, just going back for a minute, about utility aspects, I think that we are going to continue to see everyday uses of tokens. They may not be on DeFi platforms, but if you think about digital keys for a hotel, or you think about cars that are coming forward with digital keys, that form factor people are getting used to getting more exposed to, I don't know about used to, but more exposed to this concept of using a digital device to enable something. Yep. And I, like, I, I always look for the, the point of sale machines. Who's accepting a digital payment? Who's using cards? I still occasionally will break out cash just to see if the people behind the other side of the counter <laughs> actually know what to do with it. And, you know, they, thankfully they do. So we haven't reached that full digital point. But I think that the evolution is there. The more that they experience it in their real life, the more likely they are to be willing to accept it as an experiment in some social platform or some yep. uh, DeFi protocol. Now, those are those are really good points. So maybe what we can do is we could start with social media, dissect that first, and then go to payments. Yeah. Right? So even within social media, you had two different uh, major themes. So the first theme was major social media giants embracing NFTs or digital assets. So in around um, October 2022, uh, Instagram decided to enable uh, NFTs for creators or influencers. And so right now I follow a bunch of pages. Uh, I like their art. If I want to buy their art, I have to go to their website, make a new account, put my credit card in, and then buy that piece of art. But Instagram is going to remove that friction, right? So what they want you to do is they want you to go to their NFT marketplace, buy that piece of art within the app, and then uh, own it. Mm -hmm. So that's one part of it. But the second thing that they introduced is the concept of royalties, which has never happened in social media before. So if I'm an artist, I can actually toggle between 5 to 25% of the royalty fee, which I would get on every NFT sale, which has never happened before. Even after the initial scout yes, sale? Yes, exactly. So like codifying revenue into the future. Absolutely. So if I'm an artist, if I make a piece of art and you decide to be the first buyer, and tomorrow you say, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to sell it to Jack. I'm still going to get royalty fee on that transaction as an artist, which is super unique, right? Which does yeah. not happen a lot in, in traditional uh, markets or in between traditional content creators. So that's one part. The second thing is in 2022, around November, uh, you saw that there were 2.8 million users 
who created Reddit NFT avatars on Polygon, which is a huge number, right? And I think the game was to not talk about NFTs because you don't want to be the person who's just talking about NFTs. So they kind of abstracted all of that from you. All you had to care about was just go and build your avatar. And on the back end, they were using um, NFTs. So this, I think, was um, a pretty big news in terms of adoption. And we talked a lot about usability and adoption. And like, I think yeah. the theme, like one of the sub-themes there is like meeting people where they are. Like a ton of people use Reddit. Obviously, a lot of people use Instagram, mm-hmm. right? And so if you can build in a, like a meaningful offering into the apps that people already are using, right. it kind of just kind of lowers, it significantly lowers the barriers to adoption, right? And like people maybe don't care as like if you're in crypto, maybe you care about NFTs, but most people who are using Reddit probably don't really. Yep. Right. And so it's about integrating or layering in the technology in ways that people don't even know that they're, it's so good that they don't even know that they're using it. Right. And I guess I, and that's a really good point. So what I really want to talk about is why are these social media giants moving towards NFTs? Right. So what's the incentive for them? Cause they clearly don't care about blockchain technology. They just care about uh, product market fit. Right. And so um, so as you know, social media has been in the news uh, in 2022 a lot. Uh, you think about Elon's uh, Twitter acquisi- uh, um, ac- acquisition uh, and then them also slightly changing their business model to stop showing or show fewer ads, right? Which was really interesting. If you look at all the new age applications that people use, like Beereal, have you guys heard of Beereal? Yeah. Right, yeah. So if you think about Beereal, Beereal does not have advertisements, right? And so you almost see this shift of social media applications moving away from the ad revenue stream, mm-hmm. right? And that's where NFT-based social media uh, applications really come in. So the idea of, um, so this is where you can actually focus on NFTs, have people buy NFTs and then support uh, or get revenue uh, in your business. So this is something which I thought was really interesting um, yeah. as a theme, because I don't think we have seen that before. In the last six or seven years, when we think about social media, we think about advertisements only. But now they're almost sort of pivoting away, uh, which I think is really cool. It's the evol- evolution of like social media platforms. And I think there's new, like we've covered stories where there's kind of net new platforms, but it's also the existing platforms, as I said, kind of integrating, starting to think about integrating the technology. Well, I think it's for generally speaking, it's great if you can diversify your income streams. I mean, I, I don't have a strong opinion on this one because I haven't like really thought too much about it yet. But I do think about the, the social dynamic, the meeting where people where they're at. I think that is key because you're really looking for engagement. So how do you drive engagement? And if you offer a number of different uh, areas of interest or, or capabilities, that will help you retain engagement. Well, first gain it and then retain it. Yep. yep, absolutely. So that's one part of the theme. And then the second is uh, crypto-native decentralized social media, right? So when you think about decentralized social media, you think about DSO, you think about Lens, which came out in 2022, you think about Farcaster, but you see a lot of these protocols which have a lot of different front ends and you they look pretty close to Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, right? And I, I regularly use them and I think uh, we some of us may be early adopters, but I think that's the trend that you would see uh, in 2023 and 2024 where people are using Leinster or friends uh, more often than they're using Instagram, right? Well, I think it's like usability 101, like build something that people are familiar with. like. You know, like, so mm-hmm. that makes total sense that it, it looks and feels a lot like what people are already using. A truly decentralized platform, though, isn't that sort of at odds with all of these large megatech companies at the end of the day? It is. And so all of these decentralized social media applications, they actually say 
securely or sufficiently enough decentralized social media applications there, <laughs> right? So they, because so, there is, it's a spectrum, right? Yeah, and so yeah. even when we talk about decentralization, like what is decentralization, right? It's 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 still in a spectrum. So they yeah. say sufficiently decentralized social media applications because they still want to iterate fast, faster than, uh, I mean, not as fast as Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, but still uh, get more products in. So, so I, I hear you when you say that, uh, how different are they from centralized uh, applications? Yeah, or just like it, in theory, if they were very successful, isn't doesn't that pose a huge headwind to traditional large absolutely you know, tech? And and that's the reason why you see so many social media giants embracing uh, blockchain technology, right? Or just crypto. So so that's about uh, social media. Any any other comments before we move on to convergence of uh, TradFi yields, or are we all set? No, I mean, I think this will be this will be something to watch mm-hmm. for the coming year because I think there's a lot of movement on this front. Yep, likely to see more developments. Twenty twenty three. Yep. So I guess in terms of, and I think this is where I I would love to know what you think about this aspect, Jack, because I know you're you you covered macro, but I think a lot of people in the bull market came into DeFi because of the twenty percent, thirty percent, or sometimes ten thousand percent interest rates, right, yeah. or, or yields. Yeah. And if you compare that to a savings account 12 months ago that was 0.0001 or 0.01. And now that's gone away, that's glipped. So uh, as of today morning, the interest rates on Aave for USDC is around 1%. And uh, what I get on my savings account is 3.5, right? So it's it's completely shift. And so uh, there has been research which came out, which says that these two financial systems, even though it may seem obvious, are anti-correlated. Right, so one goes up, TradFi interest rates go up, DeFi interest rates go down, right? And it's almost interesting, but no one has actually done formal research to prove it. So the the way I look at it is, in TradFi, one of the things you're taught when you're first studying finance is what is your risk-free rate of return? And risk-free rate of return is typically classified as a government-issued instrument such as a treasury. And if you look at the yields on treasuries, you look at the entire yield curve, although it's inverted, it's actually paying a very decent positive return relative to not having a, uh, a significant return for some time um, leading into 2022. I think about it from a risk perspective. The operators of these DeFi platforms are managing a risk. That risk is that whatever you deposit may be available for somebody else to borrow. So they have to have haircuts on the collateral that they use. So they're not, and then questions are, are they able to rehypothecate that collateral and use it to supplement their return so that they can pay the higher yield? And generally speaking, if there are fewer borrowers out there because we've had failures of lenders, then they don't have that other side of the transaction to generate yield. Whereas if you look at a TradFi spot, whether it's a money market fund or a treasury, there's utility for that treasury. You can be using it as collateral. You can generally just pick up the income that's earned. So the risk is much less. Whereas I looked before, I could take the same dollar, I could put it in a money market fund and maybe pick up a basis point or 10 basis points, or I could get several hundred basis points in a centralized lending utility, but I knew my risk was different. Yeah, I, th- I think if you think of like what drives yield in DeFi, it's sort of like, well, for LP positions, it's trade activity, right? Tra- people trading over the pools, and then there's you know fees skimmed down to, to LPs. And obviously, trade volumes during a bear market go down, and, and we can see that in the data, that they're way down. And then for borrow-lend platforms, which is sort of the, the more relevant piece, it's like, who's borrowing? It's usually people that 
want to get access to capital to then reinvest it in the crypto ecosystem. Yep. So it's like margin margin trading or, or, or you know borrowing against your your collateral. Um, but obviously that demand has gone down because risk sentiment has changed so, in the market. So this is where I, I feel like you guys are sort of alluding to the same point, which is that um, so TradFi rates uh, went up, DeFi rates went down, but actually DeFi rates went down much earlier than TradFi rates up. Uh, rates went up. Yep. And the reason for that is because DeFi markets respond or react much quicker. Mm-hmm. They're actually exponentially faster than the Feds, right? And that, I think, was the main reason why we saw DeFi rates go significantly down even before TradFi rates uh, went up. So I, I agree they respond a lot quicker, but again, it's it's also, I, I would even segregate and not even do the comparison. I would say if I'm in DeFi and I'm looking at a 20% return, I have to ask myself, where's that money coming from? Mm-hmm. So what's the counterparty credit risk on the back end? And if I'm thinking about it from a risk management perspective, I'm questioning how sustainable would that be? And if I think there's an erosion of the business model behind that, that's going to drive those higher yield payouts, then I'm, I'm thinking I need to try and react to that. And, and unfortunately, we saw that some of the drivers behind those high rates of return were I'll call it leverage lending or they were unsustainable for a different well, we, reason. And it, it leads you to realize that people were taking their money out, not because they were going to TradFi, it's because they saw the risk and the writing on the wall and saying, I'm not going to be able to sustain this. I don't want to be the last one on the boat as it's- They realized that the, the risk was mispriced. Yep. Right, exactly. Right. Exactly, yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess, I think for a lot of these uh, big sort of C5 fiascos, or even within DeFi, I think the idea was, the business model was really simple. So a protocol will create a token out of thin air. Another protocol will use that token as collateral and then trade against something else and so on and so forth, right? And so the reason why we are sort of talking about all of this is because in my opinion, the only way to get sustainable yields in DeFi is to integrate with real world, right? Or involve real world assets. Yeah. And it, it, that almost gets to part of what we're starting to see is some of these stablecoin redemptions. Mm-hmm. Is if you look at like the actual market caps of Tether and USDC, like they did peak, I, I don't know the time frame, but like six months ago or so, because it would make sense that if you have a large amount of capital, it's worth redeeming and then going and buying treasuries for the time being until the storm passes or whatever, because you can get a better yield, right? And that's part of that convergence of so, yeah. these two worlds. So Parth, what are we... We're going to get kicked out of our studio pretty soon. So what are we what are we seeing or thinking about for the year ahead? Yeah, absolutely. So let me what I can do is let me just quickly go over what happened in 2022 and then I'm just going to touch on what uh, what you can expect in 2023. So in 2022, you saw uh, MakerDAO, which is a huge stablecoin giant in DeFi that accumulated close to 600 million US dollars in real world assets alone. They have invested 500 million in US Treasury bonds. And then you have Maple Finance and Goldfinch, which are under collateralized lending platforms. And they are financing loans to real world businesses, right? Which is really crazy. Think about this way. So DeFi protocols are financing real world businesses. Um, And so 2022 was a huge year for the connection between TradFi and DeFi. And uh, we expect more RWA infrastructure in 2023 as you have under collateralized lending platforms like uh, Centrifuge, Maple Finance, Goldfinch, really go out and get assets. And here's a really quick story which I want to talk about. I think this is also pretty interesting. So this happened in October 2022. Um, so there is a city called Columbia in South Carolina, which had a three-bedroom apartment 
uh, go out on sale as an NFT for $175,000, right? And so that's step one. So you already have on-chain representation of a house. What's the next step? How do I go on a money market protocol like Aave and get a fixed rate mortgage, right? That's something which I'm really excited about. That's awesome. <laughs> That's actually like really exciting. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're a new homeowner. Like think about yeah. <laughs> getting a fixed rate I, uh, mortgage on Aave. From Aave, yeah. <laughs> I recall some years ago, there was a, a home in Miami, a, a luxury home that was selling for 33 Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, and I think that like was, like we've seen like some examples of like tokenizing buildings and tokenizing like certain other RWAs, but like, the reality is, is it was like kind of maybe in some cases like a novelty or in other cases, like it was just completely unattainable for like your average consumer. So like the example that you just listed, like, I think that's a good, like kind of mid market, like, Hey, this actually could be for everyone. Let's start thinking about like the world of financial services that can kind of crop up around these assets in the real world. Um, bringing, bring it full circuit so that there's more utility to digital assets. Absolutely. So, yeah. So I think the last story is, uh, just big corporations, big companies like, um, Apple, Stripe, um, sort of embracing crypto by, uh, enabling, uh, people to use Apple pay to crypto native businesses, uh, and pay USDC using Apple pay, uh, finance also integrated on Apple pay and Google pay. So you're seeing a lot of these uh, big companies promote on-ramp, or not exactly promote, but enable on-ramp uh, crypto adoption. Uh, and so I think with that positive outlook, we can end today's conversation. Yeah. It's been <laughs> 90 minutes. I know, yeah, no, this was this was an awesome discussion. Thank you, thank you guys for your for your thoughts. Thanks everyone for joining. Really appreciate it. Thank you guys again, and we'll uh, we'll see you next week. Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trade marks appearing herein are the property of the respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2023. FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.